Welcome to another episode of We Are Carbon. I'm Helen Fisher and I'm joined by Michelle Gilman to discuss the connection between our farming practices, our food systems and our own personal health. We've been becoming well clued up on this podcast about the benefits of regenerative agriculture for the health of ecosystems and the climate. But for this to have an impact at scale, we need to widen the conversation and consider also how the consumer fits into this. The norm today is for food to be both highly processed and highly travelled, arriving on a shop shelf where people will often give very little thought to how or where it was produced. It's a disconnection that's caused by the system itself, and it could also be seen to be reducing the understanding we have of the impact of our food choices upon our bodies. These are topics that Michelle has given a lot of thought, and she set out to raise awareness about the role of diet in human, soil and ecosystem health, and generally reconnect people back with their food. So I asked if she could share her considerations and help fill in some of this picture. Michelle's work has often focused upon ensuring that healthy food choices are also accessible to those with lower incomes, and this has led her to the recent creation of Food Fluency, a nutrition programme that partners with non-profits working in the areas of community health and food security. She'll offer further info in the discussion, but I'd like to mention quick that she's just getting things kicked off with a crowdfunder, so consider checking out the details for that at foodfluency.org. And in an exciting pilot that we're working on together between We Are Carbon and Food Fluency, there'll be some animations on the way to help visualise some of the connections between healthy people and a healthy planet. I'll be sure to keep you updated in future episodes, so don't forget to subscribe over on the website, wearecarbon.earth. Right, let's get stuck in. Hi Michelle, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a real pleasure to have you here to talk about your work with regards to, um, we're looking at diet and the connection that diet has in the overall ecosystems of the whole planet. So it's a really big topic and I'm really excited to dive in because we've had so many um, interviews and touched so much about the power that our food choices have in regards to regenerating the planet with um, things like soil health and with sequestering carbon and these kind of um, the, the huge benefits that put a focus onto regenerative agriculture and why as consumers that is a fantastic choice for us to make. But there's also this, this sort of flip side that I'd like to, or it's a connected aspect that I'd like to explore, which is the idea that human health and the health of the planet go hand in hand. So when we are looking towards regenerative solutions to support the environment and support the climate, that actually alongside, that means that we're supporting our own bodies. And as we've sort of gone over the maybe sort of four or five decades of time, industrial agriculture has provided us with something that has offered consistency at times with the production and the quantity of food. And that has kind of had its day in a lot of sense. We've, we're sort of now seeing that any stability that that gave us, has it's going in this opposite direction um, we're depleting the soils, we're destroying the ecosystems and now we're starting to turn things around and consider that we need to work more in harmony with nature. And alongside depleting soils and having this damaging effect on the environment, we've also 
we've had a tie-in on human health. We've had an impact on human health for farming in this way. Um, and it's not just the farming itself. It's the whole system that goes side by side with that. And uh, I think it's it's a very broad subject, but it's a very significant and important one right now. So I'd love to dive into this and sort of explore your experience and your thoughts on how all of this ties in together. But before we go too far into that, it would be fantastic if you could just introduce yourself and a little bit of background about what you do. Yeah, thank you, Helen. Thanks so much for having me here and for setting the stage of what we're going to dive into. So uh, just a little background on me. I am from the, the South Shore area of Boston, Massachusetts in the U.S., and I am now living in the, the western part of Massachusetts. I actually came out to western Massachusetts for university when I was 18, and since graduating in 2013, I've since lived between Boston, Columbia, around Latin America, London, and Washington, D.C., and now recently landed back here just 15 minutes um, away from, from where I studied nine years ago, which was UMass Amherst. So I'm so grateful to now uh, kind of have returned to this area with new eyes, new appreciation for the more rural setting around here, about an hour and a half west of Boston. And I now call a 90-acre eco-village uh, my home. So just, just happy to be back here. Uh, so, so yeah, in 2016, I moved back to the States, back to Massachusetts, after having lived for a few years in Columbia and working for a nonprofit there in English education. And so I, I was really, um, at that time, looking for international development work. And that didn't come to me quickly or, or easily or really in, in a feasible timeline. So I broadened my horizons at that time and ended up getting a job in community nutrition in this organization called Cooking Matters. Um, I was excited about it because it was something totally new to me and uh, they were looking for a bilingual uh, program coordinator. So I was still able to use my Spanish and um, work with communities. And so that job consisted of working with uh, different community organizations around Massachusetts, really targeting uh, low-income families, especially young families, and teaching about um, the benefits and the skills and the education around, um, around the essential components that make up a healthy diet. So that looked like um, grocery shopping tours. We had about 45 minute to one hour uh, grocery shopping tours where we'd look at unit pricing and um, nutrition facts labels and really just the basics of navigating the grocery store um, for how to uh, shop healthy on a budget. And then to expand on that, we also did six week cooking classes. Uh, so each, each week we would explore a new topic, the basics of healthy eating and meal planning, uh, meal prep, how to incorporate more fruits, vegetables, and fiber and balance into our diet to make healthy eating the, the convenient option. And so that really opened my eyes to the passion that I now have in public health nutrition, because really up until that point, my, my main concern for healthy eating was just to stay fit and lean through balancing calorie intake and output. Like I really this whole concept of nutrition as, as food, as medicine, hadn't really uh, been exposed to me yet. And I think my, my real aha moment with that was 
seeing health and nutrition through this um, house analogy, like, you know, you can't build a house with just wood, you know, you need to have a functional house, you need to have wood, you need to have um, different mechanics, the the pipes, everything that comes into making a house what it is in the same way that you can't feed a, a body just one thing, like a body is not going to operate optimally if you just feed it starches you need to have uh, this whole diversity of intake to to keep things every every part um, needs to be nourished and so we really need to use that analogy when thinking about the importance of, of dietary diversity and so with that experience I, I was excited to kind of dig deeper into the world of of nutrition and public health so I went back to school um, and I studied um, global public health nutrition, which is what opened my eyes to the environmental aspect and wider issues around the sustainability of our food system. So even though I was exploring all the various program and policy interventions to improve public health nutrition, uh, it was really the community nutrition approach that I had experienced, which stuck with me as a well-rounded, community-led, impactful option uh, that was achievable and low cost. So that's something that I've really carried with me uh, since then. And the word nutrition can evoke a lot of different associations and emotions from people. There's so much contention in the field, you know, is juicing good for you? Are carbs evil? How about fasting? Is the keto diet healthy? And so personally, I'm not motivated to find the answers to those questions. I'm much more concerned with the public health approach to reach the masses. So before figuring out whether juicing should be recommended or not, my mission is really to facilitate a path uh, for, the, for the masses, for the majority of the world's communities uh, to the fundamentals of what constitutes a healthy diet, because really we can all agree on the importance of dietary diversity, eating enough fiber, fruits, vegetables, and protein, uh, balance its fat and overall calories while minimizing and moderating salt, sugar, and highly processed food and drink. So, so really we're starting with the malnourished because with 7 billion people in the global population right now, 1.9 billion adults are overweight or obese. So that's a quarter of the world with sufficient food, with sufficient access to food yet they either don't have um, access to health promoting food or they lack the education and skills to make those healthy choices. Um, and then there's almost a billion that are food insecure and don't have the access to the, to the food that they need. So really looking through this lens, um, I've started the food fluency program. And so the food fluency framework is an educational program that is uh, leading and supporting educational education and training in conjunction with partner interventions to increase food access in communities worldwide. This is a partner-based model for web building, strength sharing, and we're going to be starting with the pilot program in Liberia. And so what we're really focused on is working at the community level to to really facilitate making those healthy choices the convenient one. And so uh, a big thing that we look about look at is food utilization, which I will um, talk more about later on. But one example that I like to give is food access without the 
complementary education and training. So for example, there was a program in Nicaragua that was trying to improve food access. So they went in and trained the farmers or trained the community members how to grow eggplant. And so there was this whole community garden initiative um, where they were growing eggplant, but it essentially it flopped because they had never seen eggplant before. Uh, they didn't know what it tastes like. They didn't know how to prepare it. Uh, they didn't know how to you know, make, make good tasting meals with it. So it didn't go anywhere and they weren't motivated to keep growing it. Uh, so if they had done that with the complimentary training about, okay, this is why this is why eggplant is healthy for us. Um, this is how to cook with it. This is how to store it, all those things. Um, then perhaps it would have, the, you know, the efforts would have gone farther. Uh, so in addition to that international work, also uh, food fluency local in Massachusetts, we are contracting on mission aligned programs to support network weaving and program design. So yeah, it would be great to um, touch base again once, once this trial program has um, taken off and we have more tangible progress to evaluate the program concept. Yeah, fantastic. That would be wonderful because it is such a, a big and significant topic that you're looking at here. It's really, it's at the fundamental to our day-to-day -day lives to have health, um, it's it's a it's a wonderful thing that can be taken for granted when it's there and we 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 suffer significantly when it isn't and i think that to tie health with nutrition it's something that a lot of people will will never accept that that is because that's the world we live in we're actually not looking at things holistically but when we do and when we open up this this sort of broader point of view on things it it, it it's comes really very much down to that analogy that you used and I love that the you can't build a house if you've not got all the different materials and the different building blocks that are needed to to bring that all together and the body really is it's every day you know once we're an adult we may have stopped growing but we are constantly repairing and it's a wonderful system that needs to be respected in terms of um, to maintain, to maintain that health like a house, you would build that, you would then also have to continually maintain that to stop the leaks, to stop the wear and tear becoming something that prevents it functioning. Um, so I really like that analogy there, but also something else you've touched on is the complexity of diet. And it's such a controversial and contradictory topic when we look into all the different diets that we've got available to us. Um, and there's a different voice coming in at every different angle telling us what we should be doing, what we shouldn't be doing. And they tend to disagree that there isn't a one size fits all. There isn't a one voice that is the one and only to listen to. And I think that what you're talking about here is exactly what we need which is cutting through all of that confusion because it can't be about finding the perfect diet or the exact answer but there are some significant and um, there's some significant factors that I think that we've got wrong and it's kind of like that low-hanging fruit that we should be looking at if there is malnutrition within um, different um, different areas of the world and we have obesity or we have diseases from malnutrition then that that is where it should be at the foundation and of, of course also you're touching on making sure that it's affordable and 
and so to bring an education that that is it's coming from all these angles it's giving the information but then also the how-to and integrating it into people's lives I think it's it's something that is easily overlooked and it, it is something you're putting the spotlight on that's significant and life-changing for people. If you can give people the gift of nutrition, then that's that's giving them life and health and vitality. Um, and so it's a really, really incredible um, project and incredible um, motivation that, that you're working on here. I think something that comes to mind when we when we think about all of this is the word detachment. We've become detached from what food is, from how to nurture our own bodies, where the food comes from, why it's good for us. I think if we had all of that information, it becomes more intuitive as to, well, what does my body need right now? But when we are detached and we, I think when we look at the food that's on the shelf today, we go to a supermarket, it's all packaged up. We, we're looking at the branding or the colors on there we're not necessarily thinking where has this come from what does it contain and there's a lot of ingredients in there that we wouldn't even recognize we don't know what it's made of necessarily so if we're not thinking about these things if we're not clued up and we're not educated or we're not um becoming consciously aware of what's in that food we're, we're picking it for convenience or price point that that's that's detachment that's just huge detachment there's not going to be any thought to how was it farmed and where was it farmed and what journey has it gone on to to reach our house and our kitchen um so in that regard i think when we talk about a food system if we don't know where the foods come from then we're not considering what a food system is at all so i'd love to get your point of view on what you feel the food systems that we currently have look like what what are our food systems and what do you think are the biggest problems within them yeah, thanks. You make a lot of good points there, you know, in terms of knowing how to maintain our bodies. It it, it really is all provided by nature. And so I'll, I'll touch a bit on, you know, food coming from the earth, whether that's grown or hunted. Nature and and humans, we know how to go in sync and and really they it provides everything that we need. So when you speak about detachment, and applying that in the grocery store and seeing long ingredients lists that we don't identify that we can't recognize or identify and that is a simple example but it does cover a lot of um, the biggest problems and at the core are both detachment from our food sources aka nature and also uh, this fragmented industrialized food system so when we look at this it's it's the farmers producing the raw materials, or I should say, the, what you know, what is what does the fragmentation look like? It's the farmers that are producing the raw materials are completely separate from the processing of those materials in large factories, which are then disconnected from the companies that are flavoring, preserving, packaging, and selling those products, who are even likely to be in separate countries. And there are many more actors involved between each of these steps. As highly processed foods take this path, uh, rightfully so, each actor along the chain needs to perform their service for a profit. So as it goes along the chain, you know, it grows, these, these products gradually grow in uh, value and cost. And companies at the end of the chain have sworn an oath to provide these products to consumers at the lowest possible prices. 
So take a minute to consider what does this all mean? Uh, what are the financial implications of this long value chain for farmers dedicated to lives of backbreaking back, back work to plant, tend, water, care for, and harvest those raw materials? What are the climate implications for this process that pressures farms to adopt time and labor-saving industrial practices and technologies such as toxic fertilizers, pesticides, and monocropping, and the necessity of fuel-powered transport between each actor, and the waste that comes out of each stage. What are the implications on human health when we consume products that our great-grandparents would not recognize? Not just that they would be disappointed in us, but it's a reminder that our bodies have evolved on food from the earth, whether grown or hunted. Much of what goes into packaged products are foreign to our internal systems. And one thing is to take this in moderation, yet another is to be consuming it every day, maybe all day, every day. So the familiar nutrients they do contain tend to be disproportionate compared to food from the earth. And yes, we can get sufficient calories, protein, and fat from industrially produced foods and drinks, but they're also guilty for leading far too many innocent people to consume more sugar, salt, and oils than our bodies have been conditioned to deal with. So this overconsumption combined with the deficiency in fiber, micronutrients, and minerals are the root causes of imbalances that result in painful disease and early death. Now, with all this in mind, it may not surprise you to hear that one-fifth of all deaths are attributed to suboptimal diet, as such preventable. And so that was according to a 2019 Lancet report. So not to overwhelm uh, the listeners, but this is just the tip of the iceberg. And one major factor perpetuating these root problems is the corporate drive to embed the new way of eating into our lives through marketing, advertising, product placement in TV and movies, in particular targeting children as to condition them from a young age. So without being told otherwise, why wouldn't we trust the ads that our parents watch, the celebrities that we love? Without being instructed otherwise, we're happy to believe the junk that excites our taste buds can be part of a healthy lifestyle. The colorful, spunky noise all around us is saying that diets should be as convenient, cheap, and tasty as possible. That's easy to buy into, right? In a mainstream culture driven by instant gratification, it's easy to overlook the gradual harm that these food choices make on our health. And this isn't just in the US or Europe, but multiple generations in more and more countries, all backgrounds, shapes, and sizes are assimilating to industrial diet practices. So these societal demands are affecting the sustainability of food systems. It's like a giant feedback loop. The more that we become accustomed to it, the more that that demand then feeds back as an input into the food system, encouraging this um, method of production. And so zooming in kind of on the U.S. context, um, these are systemic issues that tend to impact low income and minority communities more so. And so community nutrition is also about busting the myth that eating healthy is only for the rich. Everyone has a right to nourishing diets, yet within the conventional food environment, some extra guidance and skills training may be helpful in getting us there. So with all this in mind, it, it can be get become very discouraging and think that, you know, humans don't have a a place or the or the diet doesn't have a place in um, living harmoniously with nature and the environment. But in 
really uh, an ideal world scenario, we can see, we can get a glimpse of how diet and acquiring food can be forces for good in regenerating planetary and human health. And many indigenous cultures demonstrate this and hopefully their knowledge and guidance can be raised to mainstream awareness and practices uh, before it's too late. Yeah, fantastic. It's it's definitely, um, as I started out at the beginning, it's a huge power as a consumer to be able to make choices that are good for the planet, but also to recognize that it's good for ourselves too. And I suppose what you're describing is the side-by-side impact of an industrialized agricultural system that uses very prescriptive inputs and very sort of controlled and mechanistic so that it can be predictable and dependable in that um, process that that the farmers go through and um, it can be then scaled up. I think scale is a huge part of the attraction to to working in these industrialized processes when we think back um, prior to... Um, when 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 farming was small scale, more traditional, that that really has increased in scale as it's increased in inputs and it's become more industrialized and the food system alongside. This is all part of the convenience. And as things get bigger, they get more detached. And as you've mentioned, there's just this there's distance, there's physical distance between the food that's being grown and then where it's being transported to be processed. And then it's being probably transported again for some, we, we are sort of making it into a, from a raw ingredient to a processed ingredient that's then being transported to become a finished product. Maybe there's even more steps in, in some product, but there's there's this continued growth in distance so it's each process scales up and then the distance between each process scales up they may be across borders they may be flying and shipping and when we think of right back to that point of using food to build the house sort of analogy it's it's providing something for the body every step and every day in time that's potential for the nutritional content to sort of be depleting so so we can kind of when we take a very broad and zoomed out look at things we understand why it's gone that way because it's obvious that we want as you've mentioned everybody wants to be financially successful in the process Um, but it's also convenient it's it's much more simplified and convenient to work this way and we have busy lives So as we are all, um, we're wanting to have a career and we're wanting to um, go through life with all of the different experiences, the holidays and the technology and earning the money. So the idea that we would have a system that gives that convenience where we can go to a supermarket and it's on the shelf and we don't have to think about growing it harvesting it preparing it like we might have done when our lives were a little bit more um I I don't like to use the word simple because I think it it sort of suggests that it's backwards but we we have a lot of expectation of our experience in life and we we want to do a lot of things and that's not a bad thing at all but that is why I suppose we've created such a distanced and detached system is for that, at the end of the day, it's for that convenience for all parties involved, both the consumer and the producer. But it's it's kind of gone too far. And 
uh, like you say, people don't really know what to do with an eggplant because they don't know what an eggplant is. And this is where we become aware that we need to just kind of rein things back and reconnect with our food. And there's so many different benefits that that we gain from that. The, the work that you're doing is actually local and global. And you've touched on how in a lot of ways you're focusing on the people who need the education on how to ensure that a healthy and nutritious diet is also affordable and accessible for all price points. But do you find that there's a difference in different economies and in different environments to how the food system looks or is it becoming very similar? Yeah, yeah, it's a really interesting topic. Uh, So though my work is food fluency is very nascent, I've really been fascinated by this this exact question for several years now. And the unfortunate reality is that developing countries are taking on more and more aspects of the industrialized food world with fast food options coming in, more processed and packaged options in their local shops, and then the chronic disease trends clearly following it. So this quote unquote development is taking place Yet the majority of the commercial and development attention are really focused on business alone. So going back to your point about scaling, um, that it's it's not um, it's no wonder that the objective has been to scale and that everything has been set up so that it can be easily scaled and predictable when business is the end goal. Um, if, if business, if our food system is driven by business as opposed to food as a human right, then it's going uh, to look the way that it does now to be scale to be scalable. Uh, so all of this attention is going towards the business in developing communities. Well, just around the corner, uh, people are still struggling with severe malnutrition due to poverty, and that goes along with stunting, wasting, and communicable diseases still, such as Ebola, HIV, and insect-borne illnesses, and now COVID-2 on top of all that. So while the developed world is mainly grappling with the single burden of non-communicable disease, uh, you know, cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes are the are the major ones and a lot of cancers as well. Uh, developing countries are dealing with a double burden of disease, which is both communicable and non-communicable in the same community, household, or even person. And so uh, when it comes to these trends of diet and disease, I would say there's more commonalities than differences uh, between, you know, developing and developed world contexts. So that's where food skills and education comes in as something that can uh, bring all like tie all of these solutions together. Um, of course, it's not going to look the same in, in different cultures and communities. And so food fluency curriculum is really trying to take a, a framework approach where it's more of a global framework infused with a local soul. Uh, and our partners are really what bring that local soul to life. So every time that we're coming into a new community, it is everything is driven by the partner that's already uh, you know, already been working there, already established relationships with the communities, already prioritizing the community needs. And um, any anything that we bring there is really just complementary uh, to what they're already doing. And um, another, you know, area where you see that overlap is the food industry influence. So you have these highly processed foods designed to satisfy our evolutionary desire for salty and sugary tastes. And 
So what we're trying to really focus on is um, preserving, reintroducing and raising indigenous cultures and practices um, because it's it's really already there for us. Um, these these practices, it de depending you know on the different country, um, a lot of indigenous practices are still being practiced, but are on the margins. And that is a, you know, tried and true um, lifestyle practice, very holistic. And they've been doing this for thousands of years, uh, work, living in harmony with nature and eating, you know, according to how we've been evolved and, and how our ancestors ate. So that's really something that is going to look different um, and has to be done in a very sensitive way, but it's um, again gonna be be led by the local partners that we're working with. And then of course there's the differences as well. And when you're looking at the differences between the developing and the developed um, country contexts, a lot of it comes down to resources. So the funding resources uh, look drastically different. And the water, you know, of course, when you are doing any kind of cooking or agriculture program, water is a huge issue. Um, so also you have the infrastructure and support of government and reliable healthcare and bringing up all these issues kind of emphasize the need to build these community webs because no one group or no one individual can take on all these issues um, themselves. And so when unfortunately the government is not fulfilling those basic life needs, it comes down to civic society. And um, a, there's a lot of amazing examples of communities that are already doing this, that have this web where everybody's sharing their strength and, um, you know, covering different different areas. And it's just exciting to be, to be working with all of them and learning from them too. Yes, absolutely. I'm sure it's learning all the time. I, I find it very interesting, the, the point there that you said about the more that there is development in the developing countries in terms of their food systems and bringing modern and industrial ways to them, that we're introducing modern disease. Yeah. We're introducing diabetes and this kind of thing. And doesn't that just underline that health and nutrition clearly go hand in hand? Um, that, that really we've, I, I think there's, there is still such a denial about that but that it always one is following the other every time. And that, I think, it should empower people, really. It's not something that should be um, hard-hitting. It should be this realisation that, well, actually my health can be in my own hands. And this information that you're providing with regards to educating how that can be accessible, how it can be understood from a baseline, not complicated and argumentative dietary advice that's trying to say this is the exact optimum but that is just trying to offer that baseline of standard understanding of what nutrition is and how that impacts the body that's that's incredibly valuable and with regards to the pilot project that you're doing at the moment in Liberia could you maybe use that as an example to explain some details about how that's working what the context is so we can uh, understand how you're putting this into action yeah. Um, so 
each uh, program is, like I said, intended to be in implemented alongside very closely with, uh, the, with the partner. Uh, so, for example, in Liberia, we're working with an organization called uh, Women in Agriculture for Sustainable Development. And the uh, director there is Hawa, and she's just been incredible as our first partner. She know she's agreed to kind of take this on, uh, knowing it's a pilot, knowing that we're moving very slowly and kind of building this, you know, building this um, plane as we fly it. Right. Um, because we can't have this pre-constructed um, program that we're just going to bring in and assume that we know what the cultural needs are and, you know, what the strengths and the gaps are of the food system. So with each with each partner, we start uh or we, we will be starting with a food system and nutrition assessment, which consists of first like secondary data research. So looking at um, any published reports at the country or community level to learn uh, what the kind of the map and the layout of the food system is, what their highest needs are, and what the um, kind of the public health concerns are. And then with using that data, we'd combine it with the, the uh, primary collected data. So that would be directly um, gathered from the community. So that would be focus groups um, with the community members themselves. So we are gearing up to do that um, in the next few months or so. And I'll talk about our timeline later on um, because we are trying to raise the funds um, to carry out that first workshop. And so the first, First stage is is really just gathering um, the the voices of uh, the community members. What do they What do they want to learn about when it comes to food? Um, they've been cooking, you know, their whole lives, but they can share things with each other. You know, maybe there's some households that have um, access to some information that others don't, and so they're really going to be learning from each other and uh, bringing on as many community level um really foodies as possible people that are nutritionists people that are um just passionate about food and and chefs as well um so if there's any chefs working at the community level already uh, bringing them on and kind of um you know teaching um teaching to to the participants about how to uh, utilize this this food that they're um increasing their access to how to make delicious meals with it. Um, so that is that is kind of the key is that it's 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 complementary to um, increased food that has increased access. Sorry, it's complementary to partners that are increasing food access for the participants. Uh, so when you're looking at food pro food security programs and policies, it's oftentimes broken into four pillars, which is access, availability, utilization, and stability. So uh, the, ideally, a lot of the partners that we're working with, for example, um, Hawa with Wasudev in Liberia, they are really focused on access and availability through improved production methods. And so the idea is that they're now increasing access and Food fluency comes in to address the utilization pillar. So not only you know are we are they then growing the food, but they're learning how to best use, prepare, uh, store, and everything that goes in to really um, using the food to create healthy meals. 
And so through this, we are then, you know, promoting locally sourced food and kind of tying back to that eggplant example, bringing that, bringing that forward. Um, and then, and then, yeah, creating this larger, this larger network because the goal is to work with multiple communities that can then be part of this global network and learn from each other and scale this, you know, as it works and learn from the bright spots and learn from what didn't work well and how can we fix that um, with each each new partner that we work with. Yeah, yeah, very exciting. It's, it's a lovely way of going about things. I think we can be too um, in the background, do things behind the scenes and try to perfect them. And it never really pushes things forward in quite the same way as just saying, do you know what, let's just get on the ground, let's speak to people, let's get involved and let's work together in making this um, learning experience. So you're just kind of going step by step and trying to, I suppose, rebuild connection within food systems and create something that is localized, something that's going to be very context specific. But I suppose the more that you do this and the more partners you work with, that will teach you patterns that might emerge as being very successful and beneficial in any location, in any context. So it's going to be an interesting an interesting journey for you. With with regards to the partners then, so they are essentially supporting the growth of food. They're connected in some way, usually to how that food is produced. And then you're integrating in and collaborating to help communities to become reconnected to the food that's local and how to utilize that food for their own nutrition and health and a day-to-day um, point of view. So yeah, very exciting. and. When we, when we think about food that is grown regeneratively, it seems to be a win-win. It's, it's one of those situations where it's good for the people and it's good for the environment and it's good for the ecosystems, which we know that industrialized procedures are very detrimental when it comes to ecosystem health. Um, it, could you maybe provide a bit of an overview of why a healthy ecosystem and a healthy diet are tied together? Yeah, uh, I really think diet and ecosystem are just a beautiful representation of the connectedness of all life. In a truly regenerative society, food produced by healthy soils would be consumed directly by humans with only minimal intervening between production and consumption. Uh, And that way you can reduce or eliminate wasteful byproduct or unnecessary energy consumption. So after digestion, our human waste would then be returned to the soil as a natural cyclical form of fertilization. Um, But we are, of course, very far from this um, more um, rudimentary, as some might call it, or just pre-industrial form of, of living closer to the earth. There's a lot of overlapping fundamentals between what is good for us and what is good for the planet. So um, some of the some of those key factors come down to diversity, right? Um, what's healthy for the soil is biodiversity. We hear that over and over again. Biodiversity is is good, and 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 why is that? It goes back to that house analogy of needing all of these different um, building blocks to bring in unique unique elements to support the overall system, and then that biodiversity 
leads to dietary diversity again and social diversity as well. We see that um, regardless of whether it's in the soils in our on our plate or socially um, among people, the more diverse the better. The, the, that's the stronger um, we're going to get with social diversity. We get unique perspectives and just um, greater social equality as well. And in addition to diversity, we want to keep things minimally processed and we want to keep things familiar. We want to keep things natural. So soils want to stay as far away from synthetic chemicals as we do, right? So kind of these factors um, help us make these links between what's good for the soil is good for us. So by us eating a more um, natural, balanced diet, it's inevitably going to regenerate the earth. And really Michael Pollan said it best with eat food, mostly plants, not too much. Uh, and that was from the Indefensive Food book. So I definitely recommend anybody interested in this topic to um, to check out that book. And, you know, I'm happy to provide a reading list that with some of my favorite books on this area, because a lot of these obviously ideas that I'm sharing are not um, purely my own, but I've just, I've learned from um, a lot of pioneers and uh, brave souls in this area. So these these do come down to two main components, which are cyclical systems connecting waste and production. Um, so the, the, what's such an issue with our conventional food system is that it is it is a linear form of production. Things are produced, they're processed, they're consumed, and they're wasted. Um, whereas a the cyclical, um, the cyclical system that I mentioned at the beginning, with you know human waste going back into the soil, is one of a circular economy that is much more sustainable, uh, in and it's um, one of the elements of a regenerative agriculture and regenerative society. And with all of this, I want people to keep in mind that you know the examples that I give of this ideal world things that are truly regener truly regenerative are just that. They're an ideal. They're not a realistic expectation of where we can get to in just a few years. Uh, it's helpful to have a goal to work towards because even the smallest steps in the right direction are significant. It's also important for people to not feel guilty about their lifestyle choices once they are aware of these issues. Um, so, you know, first we have the individual awareness and then try to spread the word as much as possible. Do things in moderation. Um, I think that's that's such a key word that um, I never, or I should say, I was sick of hearing when I was younger. You know, all in moderation. You know, I think my parents use that so often. Um, it wasn't until I got older and really appreciated that word because there, you know, we're not perfect. There, there are times for us to indulge in um, treats and all of those things, but it is again moderation. Um, something that I really loved using in the community nutrition work was everyday foods and sometimes foods. So things like apple pie, french fries, you know, we can't, if we think that we're never gonna have those again, um, then we feel like we're depriving ourselves, right? Um, but when you look at it as, okay, you know, sometimes I can have those treats for special occasions or, um, you know, I learned to appreciate it more when I'm not eating it every day. And then you have your everyday foods, the, the more of those um, whole 
minimally processed foods like fruits and vegetables and whole grains. Uh, those are things that we want to be eating every day and that are part of a healthier diet. And that looks different for everybody. Like we're saying, it's, it's not a one size fits all. Um, and just recognizing the gradual improvements, taking on those small wins. Yeah, I think something you said there that is very, very significant is this idea that we don't want people to feel guilty. Because I think whenever we're talking about a topic that is having an impact at looking at the habits within somebody's life and saying, well, you're, you're doing this and it's having a negative effect on your body or you do that and it has a negative effect on the environment, it can become a very overloading feeling. And really, we there's no easy way with this. We have to acknowledge at some point that, well, we can do things better, but that has to come hand in hand with understanding and sensitivity and something realistic. We can't just hammer down on people and ourselves or whatever the, the situation may be. It has to be um, something that is realistic, that's supportive um, to take us from where we are now one step at a time moving forward rather than perfection. And I don't know that there's an easy way to do it. We have to sometimes face difficult topics. But yeah, I think that has to be at the forefront. It can't be about wiping out the foods that you love just overnight or, or you know, that, that is just being one example. Something else that you said was um, about the, I suppose I could put it maybe as the mirrored principles that we have ex for example, biodiversity is a wonderful thing, a very beneficial thing, regardless of what context we put that in. So social biodiversity, soil biodiversity, and the whole system of um, diversity within nature. And that that's one of those ways of looking at things that we say, okay, being holistic makes things complicated. But actually, there becomes a tipping point where it can actually feel that it's you're mirroring it out and therefore you're sort of rinse and repeating and so it might not suit that kind of logical mind in exactly the way that we're used to but there does become a bit of a rule set underneath it all it would be really great if we could sort of maybe look at a few very specific examples um, as to how um, like what we're talking about here with regards to the health of the body and the health of the ecosystem are there some examples you could put that sort of underline that yeah, definitely. Um, I think a lot of what I've talked about so far is the kind of the discouraging um, gets us down a little bit about the realities of, of all these issues. And so when I first started learning about these specific examples, that's what got me excited. That's what lifts our spirits about um, what we really can, we can take advantage of when it comes to working towards solutions at an individual and community level. So I remember very early on something that, you know, and I was in the community nutrition world and, and still very unaware of, of how this all um, was connected between diet and ecosystem. And I had a, this really fun aha moment learning about how fruits and, and, veg, and fruits and vegetables develop their skin to protect them from the potential harms of the outside world. And then when we go to eat that skin, when we, you know, and that fruit, when those fruits and vegetables are harvested and we eat them, that skin that they develop to protect themselves, we then consume and we consume those, those same defense mechanisms and in turn develop our own protection through the concentration of those varied vitamins and, and minerals that they hold. And 
that's on top of the beneficial fiber of the skin, which keeps our digestive systems running smoothly. Uh, so that's why the inside of some fruits and vegetables are white while the skin holds all the good stuff and that's where all the colors are. And again, going back to diversity, each color does represent a different um, antioxidant. And so when we hear eat the rainbow, you know, it's not just a cheesy slogan or anything like that, eating the rainbow, um, does ensure that we're getting that variety of antioxidants. So next time you go to peel your cucumbers and only eat the white stuff, just think about how important it is to eat the skins um, of fruits and vegetables. And so another example um, is the, the nitrogen that comes from, from plants like legumes um, or pulses as they're known in, in British English, but this connection between human and soil health is beautifully represented in, in plant-based proteins because those fix nitrogen in the soil, which is uh, very, very important. A lot of the um, chemical fertilizers are intended to raise, raise the nitrogen. Um, in the soil. So we can do this naturally when planting beans. And so when humans eat more beans and, you know, like chickpeas, other um, plant-based protein, we're then um, demanding that from our food system and, in, and encouraging um, more, more of these plants to be sown and then in turn fix more nitrogen in the soil. Uh, so that's kind of a, a harmonious relationship again. Uh, other examples include herbs and edible flowers. For example, dandelions have um, so such so, such um, so many benefits to both human and soil health. All culinary and medicinal herbs that we're familiar with are really powerhouses at restoring soil with the essential nutri essential nutrients as well as us. Um, and then the last example I'll give is agroforestry, which um, you know, we know that trees are our best friends for restoring carbon to to the soil um, and taking it out of the air. And so there's a lot of um, incredible initiatives around the world to support agroforestry uh, because, of course, we can get food from them as well. Yeah, fantastic examples. I, I think that anything where we reconnect with the land and where food comes from, it starts to open our eyes a lot with regards to both nutrition and how diversity works. And we come to a lot of conclusions of how clever nature is. And I use that word loosely, I suppose you could question um, what the intelligence of nature looks like, but it's this continued evolution for a very specific set of circumstances and everything has a role to play when we have the diversity there and I'm growing a food forest um, where I am here in the UK and it's every day every sort of experience of it is so um, educational um, things like you've mentioned dandelions people think oh a dandelion we need to get rid of that out the lawn um, the idea that we could eat a dandelion that dandelion actually is medicine and it's also attracting pollinators and it's got this deep root that's helping with the soil structure it's everything's got a role to play and so we tie our diet to that and we can see that like herbs are incredibly nutritious and they're offering such a density, which is why we wouldn't eat a plateful of them. We might eat a plateful of lettuce would um, not give us probably the same nutrition as a handful of herbs or a sprinkling of herbs. So 
that there's so much to learn just by re-engaging. And I suppose that's really at the heart of everything that you're doing is this reconnection to what food is, what it does to the body, how it's produced, and um, putting that into context of how we can put that into a real world because the world has gone in such a opposite direction in terms of the food systems we've established. So the work you're doing is very important and of course it's such a broad subject. It's such a huge subject because it's got relevance to everybody and it has um, therefore got so many different contexts and environments and situations to find a balance in. But the work that you're doing is is sort of taking one one angle that is really going to be interesting to see what you learn and how that experience continues for you. So um, best of luck with it all. And I'd, I'd just like to ask, is there anything else that we haven't covered that you'd like to sort of add to this? Yeah, uh, there's a few things. I guess I kind of touched on this before, but just to stress, like, don't let perfection get in the way of good. Um of course, there's a lot of um, a lot to go, a lot to a lot to overcome and, and change to get to a more sustainable food system that we're all proud to be a part of. Uh, but don't, you know, don't underestimate the small wins. Uh, there's, you know, look around and if you, you know, Google, you know, sustainable food in your in your local community, I'm sure you'll discover um, some exciting things happen that you can, you know, volunteer at a community farm and, and learn about um, all the different initiatives that they have going on. And food is such a big part of our lives. Like you said, there are endless opportunities for making small, gradual changes. Uh, and that makes sense for you. You know, no two, for, no two food stories are the same. So you might hear of a friend that is totally, you know, gone vegan or um, has reduced their food waste 100%. Like that's, that's great. Um, but if that's not feasible for your life, you can find other ways, you know, if you do um, one day a week with a, one day a week with no meat or um, going to a farmer's market once a month instead of not at all, those, those gradual steps are, are really going to make a huge difference. Um, and it's an encouragement again to like think global, act local, right? We have never had such a, there never before in our history have we had so much access to the information of what's happening around the world. So we can tune in to webinars that are happening on the other side of the world. We can learn about what are, you know, initiatives that are working well and think about how they might be adapted and um, applied to your local community and see what gets you excited. And lastly, I would just tell people that um, for the Food Fluency pilot program to get off the ground, we are running a crowdfunding campaign. And so I would um, just request for people to consider visiting our website. It's uh, foodfluency.org. And you can watch a crowdfunding video and hear directly from the participating farmers and program leader Hawa of Women in Agriculture for Sustainable Development. So um, yeah, please check that out and just um, stay in the loop. 
Fantastic. We'll add a link to that so that there's a sort of a direct click over to the website if people want to take a look. And there's something there that you've reminded me that I wanted to ask you about. This idea that when we reintegrate with where our food has come from, that is giving opportunity to get involved with local projects, local community. And this is a huge part of it. That's another win-win because it gives us socialization and it gives us so much in addition to the connection to our food. But this, this gives the opportunity for our diets to also become more locally sourced and more seasonal. And I wondered if you could sort of give some thoughts on how significant, how important do you feel that that is? Yeah, yeah, of course, um, as local and seasonal as we can eat, uh, the better. And those two things really go hand in hand. Although that's not to say, you know, there's anything bad with freezing, canning or, or preserving locally grown produce so that you can eat it off season. Um, but in general, yeah, eat, yeah, eating and acquiring your food more locally and being a part of your community food system is really one of the simplest ways that we can vote with our dollars to mitigate the problems caused by the industrial food system. And the more we do it, the more accessible these options will become. Uh, though I said before that healthy options can be affordable, I'm well aware that producing at a smaller scale, small batch, has its challenges for keeping prices competitive yet profitable for sustainable business ventures. So with this in mind, food education and skills training really can only go so far. We're still uh, a ways away from being able to tick all the boxes with you know, healthy, affordable, local, ecological, somewhat convenient, because realistically, we all deserve a little convenience here and there. Um, but to be able to tick all those boxes for all of our essential dietary needs, uh, we still have a lot more work to do. And that's what's exciting about these regenerative movements that are happening and, and the web that we're all building together. So with that, we'll just celebrate the small wins as they come up. Yeah, fantastic. And there is one more thing. If I could just sort of go right back to the beginning, you introduced that you are uh, living at the moment in what you described, I think, as an eco village. Mm -hmm. And I'd, I'd love to kind of maybe just bring in how do you feel that that is something that solves a significant amount of these challenges? Like, for example, the ability to have food that's fresh and local but also convenient like the, that sort of community basis is that bringing in the convenience to the mix yeah um i i definitely will i'll try to keep this short and sweet because i think i could do another podcast on the eco village um but it's it's been an incredible experience um it's called serious community if people want to look it up um online and it it definitely helps with making those things more convenient not only that we can have like that farm share right on site, you know, where we each pay um, a small amount to to cover the costs and and just you know access the community center fridge when we want to get our our produce, um, but also we take part in in the garden. So every Saturday we have a community work day and we do all the priority tasks that are um, on the list for that week. And oftentimes there is garden work involved. Uh, so we get you know our hands dirty there as well. Um, but a big, I think a big part of that is also like the the meal creation because the convenience is not just having access to those locally grown produce at your door. Um, it's also getting those, that produce prepared into a meal. Um, and we have these rotation, rotational community dinners that people can opt into 
And so we take turns cooking. And that's really nice because then you get to um, enjoy a home cooked meal almost every night and only have to take on the responsibility of cooking once a month or so. So that's, that's just one example of why this brings so many benefits to the people living here. Yeah, and it's a very clear example. I think it, it it does offer a huge solution to one of the aspects of why the food system has become the way it's become, because convenience is something that people really do. They, they want to be able to fill the tummy at the end of the day, but they probably don't want to get in front of the stove and necessarily be preparing and chopping and, and waiting for that to cook. And that's that's why we have um, the system we have. So that, that offers... Uh, food for thought with regards to the alternatives and the opportunities. There's there's many different solutions that work in different situations, but mm-hmm. I, I like that example. It's very clear. Yeah, thank you. So yeah, thank you for joining us. It's uh it's been really great to learn from you, and um, yeah, thank you for everything. And best of luck with it. Or we'd love to. Well, I would love to catch up uh, at some point and see how things are going and what you've learned from everything. Thank you so much. As you can tell, I love talking about this topic any chance I get. Um, So whether it's you or any of the listeners, um, I think my contact information will be made available. So don't hesitate to reach out with any idea you have or just want to chat. Thank you. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. And uh, we'll speak soon. Thank you, Helen. And thank you for listening to this episode of We Are Carbon. Next time, we'll be joined by Colin Andrews, chair of the Tieni Fund, which supports the training of smallholder farmers in Malawi, southeastern Africa. Their deep bed method is transforming communities through the regeneration of their soils. And we discuss this work along with considering the lessons learnt and their relevance to the wider world. You can keep up to date with everything from We Are Carbon by subscribing on the website or following along on Instagram. Search for wearecarbon.earth. And let's keep figuring this all out together.